Jacobs. I'm Vice Chairman of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth and a proud sponsor of today's program. Thanks to every one of you guys and ladies for being here. We appreciate you so much. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our fellow program sponsors and our good friends, Hetty and Dr. Don Reynolds. I'd also like to recognize one of the council's brand new members joining us today, Claire Collins. Claire, will you way back in the back? We are, we are thrilled to welcome you to our community. Thank you for being here. If you aren't yet a member of the council, I encourage you to join us. As the holiday season is upon us, remember that a council membership makes an excellent gift. We also have teachers and students joining us from Trinity High School and the HEB Independent School District at the table back in the far left. The, they, they have with them two great educators, Julia Wilson and Jessica Lugel, and they also brought a guest. Uh, the Council's Global Young Leaders Program provides essential opportunities for educators and students to engage with our programming, and we are so proud to have you all with us today. Thank you so much. I hope you will, I hope you will ask questions when the time comes, and I know from already speaking with you that that probably will happen, maybe even the first excellent question. So, no pressure there. As to our upcoming programs, I just wanted to mention the council is committed to providing a safe environment for our community members, for, for the most up-to-date information on our health and safety practices, and to view our complete upcoming event lineup, please visit dfwworld.org. It is my distinct honor and my great pleasure to introduce our distinguished guest today. Congressman Adam Schiff. After he graduated from Harvard Law, Representative Schiff moved to Los Angeles to serve as a clerk, <coughs> excuse me, as a law clerk for a district judge, and then he joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in LA, LA as a federal prosecutor, where he served for almost six years. Most notably, he prosecuted a gentleman named Richard Miller, the first FBI agent ever to be indicted for spying for Russia. Elected to the California State Senate in 1996 as, his youngest, as its youngest member, he worked to pass landmark legislation for his state, while also teaching political science courses at Glendale Community College. Now representing California's 28th Congressional District in Congress, Schiff serves as chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. And that has to be the longest name for, for a chair, right? <laughs> Schiff is recognized as a leader on national security and foreign policy issues, emphasizing a strategy that calls on America to play a leadership role around the world in cooperation with its allies, yet remaining true to our values and our interests. He led the House impeachment inquiry and served as the lead impeachment manager during the Senate impeachment trial of President Trump, which had us all glued to the news not that many months ago. Here to guide the conversation is our council president and CEO, Liz Brailsford. Liz has been with our council now for 10 months, and I, along with our entire board, have greatly enjoyed working with Liz. Liz comes to 
Dallas from Washington, D.C., where she served as Chief Operating Officer of the World Affairs Councils of America. <clears throat> Her career has crossed all sectors, nonprofit, private, and public, and I look forward to what we will continue to accomplish with Liz at the helm of our council. I know we are in for a fascinating discussion. Please join me in welcoming CEO Liz Brailsford and Congressman Adam Schiff to the podium. Good afternoon. Hi, Molly. So, good afternoon. Thank you. It, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for the warm welcome. Again, again. Welcome to Dallas. And we are talking about, with Congressman Schiff, midnight in Washington. And I have to say, we were kind of talking about this a minute before lunch started. It's almost like a half action thriller, half assessment of what's been going on these last four years. And it's fascinating, it's accessible, it's easy, it's fun. I can't wait for all of you to read it. So, thank you for that. And congratulations on your book. There is a lot to discuss. And as you say in the book, it is midnight in Washington. How did we get here? So that is the question for today. How did we get here these last four years? So there's a lot to discuss. Let's dig right into that. Congressman Schiff, it has been a wild ride for you these last few years. How are you? Have you caught up on sleep? <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. I don't know whether you all have the same uh, reaction, but I find the question, how are you, to be much more complicated than it used to be. Um, you know, on the, on the one hand, you know, very well. My wife and I have two kids, and we uh, just dropped our youngest off to college uh, about a month ago, so we're empty nesters, uh, and so far, so good with that. Work-wise, um, you know, I thought we had an opportunity uh, to turn the corner um, after the last election. And I think it's a terrible tragedy for the country that we have not turned a corner. Uh, that even after uh, we saw what the last four years brought us to, a, a bloody attack on the Capitol, um, that we didn't repudiate what had gone on. Uh, and, and we missed an opportunity, I think, as a country to move forward. Uh, and that, that hangs over me. Uh, the fact that, that uh, our democracy is in such continuing jeopardy. Um, so it's hard for me to say when I'm asked, how are you, um, that I'm doing great, because while personally things are good, um, in terms of the country, things are very, very, um, very much at risk. I, I had uh, lunch with a couple friends of mine, a married couple in their 90s, mid-90s. They've been married 70-some years, so we should all be so lucky. And I asked them, have you ever seen anything like the present? And they said, we remember World War II and the Great Depression. We remember Korea and Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Civil Rights Movement. But we've never been more worried about the future of our country than we are today. Because through all of those prior years of tumult and turmoil, 
We never wondered whether America would get through. We never wondered whether we could, would retain our democracy. But now we do. And so I think this is a fragile time in the life of our country. Uh, I, I'm confident we'll get through it. But, but what we do in this moment, I think, will determine how quickly we get through it uh, or how much damage we have to suffer along the way. So probably a far more complicated answer than you want, but, uh, but it's a complicated time. That is exactly the answer that I wanted. I didn't want you to say, I'm, well, I'm great. And <laughs> obviously, things are going on in our country. Uh, well, it seems like a lot of politicians who are current politicians, well, let's say this, a lot of former politicians will often write a book, and they're able to give a clear analysis and more constructive criticism because they are further removed from politics. Why did you write this book now, while you're still in office? Yeah. Um, during the course of the last several years, I had any number of my colleagues stop me on the House floor and say different versions of the same thing, which is, you better be writing this down. I hope you're, please tell me you're writing this down. Uh, you're in the middle of a, an historic chapter in the nation's history. You better be putting this down on paper. And I would always respond the same way by saying, when do I possibly have time to write any of this down? And then the pandemic hit. And suddenly I was you know, confined to quarters like so much of the country. And I thought, if I am ever going to write this down, I should write it down while it's fresh. Um, you know, during the impeachment, I had to study the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. We're still studying the impeachments that took place, you know, 150 years ago. And I know that in the future, people are going to want to know what was going on right now in this country. And, and so I wanted to set it down. But I also wanted to try to give some perspective because, well, the events are still fresh. We can look back with some perspective now. Uh, on a time when things were happening so fast and so furious that it was hard to put them in context and, and add up and see the bigger picture. And there were two things that really were terrible epiphanies for me over the last four years, and now they seem quite self-evident, but at the time they were a rude shock. And the first was that the predominant threat to our democracy no longer comes from without. Um, the Russians are trying to meddle with us. They've been trying to meddle with us. Um, but the bigger threat, frankly, is what we're doing to ourselves. And the other realization for me was that the reason we're so much at risk right now is not because of some flaw in the Constitution. I don't think we want to change the Constitution to be able to impeach presidents with a majority vote and turn the Congress into kind of a parliament. The problem isn't with how it's drafted. The problem is if members don't give meaning to their oath of office, if they're not motivated by ideas of right and wrong, if they don't acknowledge what are simple facts, then none of it works. And over the last four or five years, I saw people that I knew and respected on the other side of the aisle because I believed that they believed what they were saying turned out not to believe it at all, or if they did believe it, none of it mattered as much as their ambition. And I want to tell the story of how that happens, how good people come to be used so badly. Um, Robert Carroll, the historian, once wrote that power doesn't corrupt as much as it reveals. It doesn't always reveal us for our best, but it 
says a lot about who we are. And over the last four or five years, power has revealed a lot about the people that I serve with, the people that served in the Trump administration. And, and I think it's an important story to tell how it, how it comes to be that people um, end up sacrificing what they believe in, uh, even their morality, um, how it happens and, and how it happens so swiftly uh, as, as a kind of warning mm. for the country. So that's, that's why I didn't wait. Mm. Well, you've just talked about several points that are major themes in your book and that we should talk about. You talked about impeachment, so let's go there. Uh, referring to the Trump impeachment, the first one that you led, would you have done anything differently in hindsight? Yeah. Um, and are you able to hear Liz okay? No. no. Okay, um, just too soft. We're too soft up here. I think you may need to hold the mic. I'm going to do it. Um, I'm going to do it. But you can hear me, right? Yeah. Let me repeat the question. I asked him with the first impeachment that he led, uh, is there anything in hindsight that he would have done differently? I would have won uh, <laughs> in hindsight. Um, yeah, I thought a lot about this, whether there was anything I could have done differently to get a different result. And, and of course, I'm a, uh, the most biased person to ask that question. But when I consider the fact that what I was trying to do in that trial was to warn the senators that if they didn't hold the president accountable for what he had so provably done to abuse his office, withholding hundreds of millions of dollars from an ally that was at war with our adversary, and why? To get Ukraine to help him cheat in the election by smearing his opponent. That if they didn't hold him accountable for that, that what would come after would be far worse. And, and the fact that when they saw what came after, when they saw that what that led to, that, that failure to hold him accountable led to, um, was a bloody insurrection, even then they wouldn't vote to convict. If I look back and I say, well, could I have said something differently? Could I have done something differently? Even with a bloody insurrection, they wouldn't convict. So I don't know that there was anything I could have done differently, but, but I have to say that I approached the trial differently than any other trial I'd had. Dallas Baptist University is a global Christ-centered institution whose students are making an impact in business, law, medicine, education, public service, and the list goes on. DBU is honored to sponsor the Global IQ podcast and to offer a significant scholarship for World Affairs Council members towards a master's in international studies. For further information about this scholarship or about DBU in general, email Lee Bratcher at leeb at dbu.edu. In my life, and I'd been a prosecutor for a number of years um, in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, I'd tried an impeachment case against the federal judge 10 years earlier, but I had never gone into any courtroom, including the Senate, expecting to lose, but I went into this one expecting to lose. And when the speaker asked me to lead the case, I told her I expected that we would lose, but I thought that the key was, how do we win by losing? And 
what I concluded was there were really two juries that we were arguing the case to. There was the jury in the Senate, which we were not going to persuade. Barring a miracle, we were not going to persuade. And then there was the jury of the American people. And as between those two juries, it was the second jury that mattered the most. Um, and I would like to believe that the case we made, not just on the president's guilt, but even more importantly, on just his fundamental unfitness for office, his basic indecency um, helped inform people such that when they had to make a decision thereafter whether to ret retain him or refuse him another term, they decided to refuse him another term. Um, so I, I'd like to believe we made that case. Um, but I, I, you know, of course, there are little individual things I can always point to and some that are not so little along the way that I would have done differently, but, but I, I'm not sure that it would have had any impact on the result. Mm. Well, you mentioned the American people, and thinking about this question through that lens, and if we are indeed the most important, and given the fractious society that we have and the political cynicism that we have, should we have, and in light of January 6th, should we have pursued both impeachments? So impeachment happened. You've commented on how you would have done it differently, but should we have pursued both of them? I, I think the answer is strongly yes. Um, and the reason I say that is I was not an early proponent of impeachment. Uh, and those of you that followed the, the first trial carefully, you might remember the defense put on a whole collage of people who were urging the impeachment of Donald Trump, some from his first weeks in office. Notably absent from that highlight reel was me. Um, I was not urging his impeachment uh, during the Russia investigation. In fact, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times with the title, Democrats Don't Take the Bait on Impeachment. Um, what I was arguing during the Mueller investigation and during our own investigation was, let's follow the evidence, let's develop the record, and then decide what the consequences should be. And when we finished, as a practical matter, that process, it ended with Bob Mueller's testimony. And on the day after Bob Mueller testified, that is, the day after Donald Trump watched Bob Mueller and was pleased with what he saw and believed that he had finally escaped the jailer, it was the next day he was on the phone with the president of Ukraine seeking to get help from another country to cheat in another election. And bear in mind, in terms of the Russian misconduct, lest, lest you believe the oft-repeated propaganda of no collusion, no, no obstruction, what we learned in the investigation is that Donald Trump's campaign chairman, and this is just one fact, but it is a very telling one, Donald Trump's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, was secretly meeting with an agent of Russian intelligence named Konstantin Kalimnik and giving Russian intelligence their internal campaign polling data repeatedly and their battleground strategy for key Midwestern states while that agency of Russian intelligence was running a clandestine social media campaign to elect Donald Trump. Um, now, you tell me if the facts were reversed and that were the Clinton campaign, whether anybody on Fox News would have anything to say other than criminal collusion, conspiracy, you name it. 
But when Donald Trump believed he had escaped the jailer, when Bob Mueller testified, and because in part Bob Mueller was not the same man as he had been years earlier, Donald Trump felt that he had beaten the rap. He felt empowered to abuse his office and knew in even more devastating ways. And when he was once again held accountable, or actually not held accountable, with the acquittal in the first trial, um, it was also a, a straight line to insurrection. Uh, and so I felt after learning what Donald Trump did on the day after Bob Mueller, that it was more dangerous not to hold him accountable, uh, even if we couldn't succeed, than to hold him accountable to the best of our ability. Uh, and I also feel that just because the Senate didn't uphold their constitutional duty, didn't give us the right in the House to ignore ours. Hmm. Well, uh, one last question about impeachment, and then we'll move on. Uh, you say in the book that many leading uh, Republican colleagues of yours would go on television and bash you, and then, thank you, Paul, and then, uh, but to urge you privately to, quote, keep doing what you're doing. So are Republicans today more or less willing to break with Trump? Can you comment more on that? Uh, you know, I wish I could say that Republicans are more willing to break with the former president, but I haven't seen evidence of that, uh, not yet. Um, they may run away from him to some degree as the, um, as the governor-elect in Virginia did, um, but the, the true barometer, as far as I'm concerned, is are the Republicans in Congress still embracing the big lie about our election? And the answer is yes. Um, and, and this gets back to a point I was making earlier. I don't know how many of you watched Steve Scalise, the number two Republican in the House, was on Chris Wallace on a Sunday morning program about three weeks ago. And he was asked three times by Chris Wallace, can you just say the election wasn't stolen? Can you just speak the words? Now, he didn't put it quite that way, but basically that was the import of his repeated question. And Scalise couldn't bring himself to acknowledge that the election hadn't been stolen. And I watched that interview, and I thought to myself, I, I can't believe that when Steve Scalise decided to run for Congress some years ago, that he said to himself, I want to run for Congress so one day I can be part of a big falsehood about our elections, which undermine the fabric of our democracy. But then there he was. And, and how does that happen? Um, and, the, and the short answer is it happens one day at a time, one small compromise at a time. You're asked to do something just a little unethical. Then you're asked to do something just a little more unethical. You're asked to tell one falsehood and then maybe a bigger falsehood next time, and pretty soon you're so far in. Or you're so far wedded to your position that you can't stop. Uh, if you look at two women in the Congress, you can tell a lot about where we are as a country and, and a lot about character. Liz Cheney refused to carry a big lie about our election. Uh, and, and by the way, this isn't just some inconsequential falsehood. If you persuade millions of people, as the former president has and as so many of my colleagues in Congress have, if you persuade millions of people in the country that they cannot trust our elections anymore, 
then what is left but violence to decide who governs? Um, that, that is dangerous to our country. Well, Liz Cheney said, I won't be part of that big lie. And she was willing to risk her position in Congress, her position in Republican leadership, and, and lost that position. And when she took that principled position that she would not carry the big lie, there was another member of Congress, Elise Stefanik, to say, then I'll carry the big lie. If I can advance my career, I'll carry any lie you want. Uh, and that's how it happens. St Steve Scalise wants to keep his position. He's a smart guy. He knows the truth, and he knows how destructive that lie is. It's just not important enough to him compared to keeping his position. And, uh, you know, we, we, we look around the world, we look through history, and we wonder how bad things happened in other places. For a long time, we thought it couldn't happen here. Nothing like that could happen here. And I'll tell you, the last five years should be a lesson to us that uh, our oceans can't protect us, um, that ultimately we're really dependent on the character of the people that we elect. Uh, and we're, we're also dependent on being good citizens ourselves and being good informed citizens. And you know, I, I want to tell you how much I appreciate the World Affairs Council. Um, I think you do a remarkable job. I'm glad you had my colleague Jeff Flake last night. I'm glad you hear a diverse set of opinions. Um, there are some people outside who <laughs> don't want you to hear a diverse set of opinions. I'm glad you are. And uh, Jeff and I came to Congress together. I think the world of him. I think he's a really principled person. You know, I'll tell you something about Jeff Flake, which he wouldn't tell you himself because he's too modest to say it. But Jeff Flake is a really good politician in the best sense of the term, meaning if he cared nothing more than getting reelected to the Senate in Arizona, he would have been reelected to the Senate in Arizona. But that would have required him to sacrifice what he believed in. That would require him to endorse um, a kind of immorality that he could not endorse. And, and I think it's fascinating. I, I don't know how many of you saw his farewell speech in Congress. I think it's one of the best speeches ever given in Congress. Um, that both he and Mitt Romney show, showed the same moral courage. Um, and I don't, think it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that both people are deeply devoted to their faith. And they live their faith. I have a lot of colleagues who talk about their faith but don't seem to live their faith. Um, but I think Jeff Flake and Mitt Romney live their faith. And, and of course, a lot of my colleagues do. But, but at, at the end of the day, um, it really, it really matters if people are going to uh, give meaning to um, their, their words, give meaning to their commitment to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. It has to mean that you support the integrity of our elections. Uh, if it doesn't mean that, then, then, then it's just words. So let's follow that line of questions. And uh, you said one lie at a time. And, and let's say that one lie at a time sets us up for uh, a lot of anger from both sides. Uh, what do you think the exact, if you could pinpoint it, what do you think the exact starting point of such 
acrimony in our society. What, 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 what started that? Well, um, first of all, I, I think it predates the last occupant of the Oval Office. So not all of what we're going through can be laid at the feet of any, any single person. Um, where we are today is also the product of, I think, two really powerful uh, global forces, one in the economy and one in how we get our information. Uh, in the last uh, 20 or 30 years, our economy has become increasingly, increasingly global and increasingly automated. And as a result of those changes, millions of Americans and millions of people around the world have been losing their jobs through no fault of their own. Uh, or being downgraded into other jobs that provide them no security, uh, no health care, no retirement. Um, millions of people in the middle class suddenly at risk of falling out of the middle class. People are most prone to, uh, to rebellion, not when they have nothing, but when they have something, and they're at risk of losing it. And that is a very fertile environment for the rise of demagogues. And it's no coincidence that in this last 25 years of rising income inequality and rising economic instability and anxiety that you've seen despots rise in Turkey and in the Philippines and Brazil and in Poland uh, and in Hungary and elsewhere. Um, so Trump was part of a global trend. Um, and the other really propelling force here is how we get our information, which has been completely revolutionized. Um, when I was in college, uh, and you all may remember this too, I rushed home to see Walter Cronkite's last broadcast. Um, that was a time when there was a large body of agreed upon fact, and we might differ with what to do with those facts, but we agreed there were things called fact. Um, now people tune into the news they want to hear. And even more often, most Americans now get their news from social media through algorithms which show us what we want to see. Uh, and sometimes those algorithms also just um, lead us down the worst and most destructive rabbit holes. Uh, you know, of all the Facebook revelations that have come out in the last several months, the one that I found most telling and most disturbing was uh, an internal experiment that one of the researchers at Facebook did Facebook created an artificial woman, um, a woman who was a Republican Christian mother. Um, and I think she may have been a Fox News watcher also. So this was the generic character of this woman. Now, not a real woman, but they invented this profile, and they ran it through the algorithm. And that algorithm led this generic Christian mother, Republican, Fox-watching woman straight to QAnon uh, and fed her more and more QAnon content. Um, it was a direct line from that simple criteria to QAnon. Um, and you know this, uh, this revolution in how we get information, the fact that, that you and I and, and me in particular and those people outside get our information from such different places has contributed to a lot of this enormous acrimony. Um, I'll, I'll give you one final data point on this. I'm now a human focus group anywhere I go. Um, people stop me to tell me 
um, whatever they want to tell me uh, in often very graphic terms. Um, and I get the most graphic feedback when I'm at airports for some reason. I think maybe it's because at airports you know you're never going to see that person again, uh, and so they feel free to tell me whatever is on top of mind. And I will literally have people come up to me in rapid succession. The first who will say, are you Adam Schiff? I just want to shake your hand. You're my hero. And the next person will say, well, you're not my hero. You lie all the time. Why do you lie all the time? You should be ashamed of yourself. Your family should be ashamed of you. I think your family is ashamed of you. And I will look at these two people, and I will say, sometimes to myself and sometimes to them, I know what you're watching, and I know what you're watching, and it's not the same thing because I'm the same person, and I can't be both. Um, and of all the problems, this is the most insoluble. Um, the economic challenges have fixes that at least I can wrap my head around. And I think what we're doing in Congress right now with the rescue plan and the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better bill, which will be the most significant investment in the middle class since the New Deal, addresses a lot of those fundamental economic uh, uncertainties and anxieties and needs that have propelled this kind of brand of xenophobic populism. So there are answers to that, and we are pursuing them. But the, the bigger riddle is how we get our information. That so divides us now. And, and I wish I had a simple answer. We can, we can take away the immunity of the social media companies, and we probably will. But what does that do about Fox, Newsmax, and OAN, from my point of view? The leading thought leader, and I have trouble speaking these words, but the main thought leader right now in the Republican Party is Tucker Carlson. My colleagues in Congress look to him for what to say. They parrot what he says. And right now, Tucker Carlson believes that Viktor Orban, the wannabe dictator in Hungary, is the model to follow. And conservative groups are hosting political conventions in Budapest because that's the model. Authoritarianism now is their model. Um, and there's no answer to that. Uh, I mean, we, we, we need in this country at least two functional parties that are devoted to our democracy, parties of ideas. I, I, I'm hoping and praying that the Republican Party will again be a party of ideas and ideology, will be that, that, that Liz Cheney will be the future of that party. But the question is, is that a near future or is that a distant future? And, and I wish I could tell you that, that it's a near future, but getting back to your earlier question, I don't see it yet. I don't see it yet. Um, and we really need people of good conscience in the GOP in particular to speak out. I would love to have our former President Bush be more vocal. Um, I would love to have the McCains be more vocal um, because I know that that kind of violates the unwritten rule that former presidents don't critique current presidents, but this is not a normal world. And, and we need the, the Republican Party to return to being a party of fact, and a party of belief, a party of morality, a party of conservatism. Um, we, we need that party to return to its roots. 
So uh, I asked this of your former colleague, Flake, last night, and you talk about how there's a possible split in the Republican Party. Uh, is it possible for us to have more than a two-party system? Is that possible? What do you think about that? Uh, it's possible, but in the near term, it, it would have, I think, potentially very um, unpredictable results. Uh, I mean, I, I'm scarred by the experience of Al Gore's campaign with George Bush and Ralph Nader's impact. Um, probably people in the Republican Party are scarred by um, the Clinton-George Herbert Walker Bush race and, uh, and uh, I, I'm Ross Perot and Ross Perot's uh, role in that campaign. So it's certainly more than theoretically possible for us to have more than two parties. But can we have more than two parties where the third candidate is, is more than a spoiler um, is, the, is the question. Well, I want to get to a student question, but let me ask you, because it's been in the news so much in the last couple of days, a week maybe, uh, talking about the indictment of Igor Donchenko and the dossier. Uh, that the Clinton campaign funded, and many Democrats, including yourself, promulgated it at the time. Can you comment on that? What are your, what are your thoughts with that? Well, first of all, uh, we should put in context um, Fusion GPS, and this will be a more complicated question than you probably want, but um, Fusion GPS was an opposition research firm that was actually initially hired by the Washington Free Beacon a conservative uh, think tank newspaper outlet in D.C. that was anti-Trump in the primary. So Fusion first began working for a conservative client. Uh, and then when um, Trump became the nominee, uh, did work for the Clinton campaign. Uh, Fusion GPS hired Christopher Steele, uh, a former respected British intelligence officer, uh, to... Um, uh, look into uh, Trump and his ties to Russia. Uh, and Steele put together a dossier of what he described as raw intelligence. One of his sources is this guy, Danchenko. Danchenko was just indicted for lying not to Christopher Steele, although apparently he did lie to Christopher Steele, uh, but when he was interviewed by the FBI, lying to the FBI. Um, he should go for, to jail for that. Um, just as Roger Stone should have gone to jail for lying about the Russian investigation, and as Michael Flynn should have gone to jail for lying about the Russian investigation, both of whom, however, were pardoned by Donald Trump because they were lying to cover up for him. Um, I can guarantee you this, I think, that Mr. Danchenko, if he's convicted, will not be pardoned by Joe Biden. Um, but to suggest that four years ago, that we should have known that one of Christopher Steele's sources would be proven to have lied five years later, um, none of us have that kind of crystal ball. What I said at the time of the dossier was not that it was all true, but that what it alleged should be investigated. And it was during, of course, our investigation that we would learn things, frankly, far worse than what was alleged in the dossier or some of the things alleged in the dossier, um, which was you know, as I mentioned, that the Trump campaign was, in fact, trying to collude with the Russians by giving them 
inside campaign information by asking them to intercede to hack Hillary's emails, uh, by having secret meetings in the Moscow, in the, I'm sorry, in the New York Trump Tower with the Russian delegations to get dirt on Hillary and many other things. Um, so that's a little bit about Danchenko and where he fits into all of this, which is not very much. Um, because of course, whether someone lied to Christopher Steele who reported to Fusion GPS um, has nothing to do with whether Trump was guilty of trying to collude with the Russians. Um, but, but as you can imagine, the Fox world thinks it's, this is really the issue of the century. Um, because they hope that if they can get you to think about this figure that nobody really understands, Christopher Steele, I mean, what is that all about anyway? That maybe people can be persuaded that Donald Trump really didn't do all the things he did. Um, that's sort of the political motivation uh, behind this. Um, and they don't have really a very good answer for why they thought it was perfectly copacetic for Donald Trump to pardon the liars. But they're so uh, exercised by this liar. Um, but then consistency has never been a strong suit in that crowd. Well, I want to get to questions. And I want to start off with Trinity High School. Thank you again for being here. And a student would like to know, how will you engage young voters in 2022? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm glad the students are here. And we really desperately need you to be engaged. Um, one of the bright lights for me of the last several years uh, has been the fact that uh, through this difficult time, some of the very best people, I think, in our history have run for Congress. The class of 2018 was, I think, the best class we've, we've had in my lifetime of new members. And I will hold them up against the, um, the Watergate babies or any other class of new members. Just an extraordinary group of people. And, and not surprisingly, a lot of them veterans of the State Department, of the intelligence community, and of the armed forces. And I think in the same way after 9-11 that people joined the service because they wanted to defend the country, um, after witnessing what has gone on the last several years, people have decided they need to serve in a different way uh, and decided to serve by running for office. Uh, and a lot of those new members are young members, and they're fantastic. Uh, and, and even younger people who may not be old enough to run for Congress right now um, they give me a lot of hope about the future. Your demographic is already one of the largest and most important uh, and could be running this country if you participated in the political process. If young people voted in their numbers, they would be running this country. Uh, and so I love how impatient you are. Young people have no patience for bigotry. Young people have no patience for what we're doing to destroy our planet. They have the best kind of impatience. Uh, and, and what I would say to young people is use that impatience to change this country. Get involved now. Um, I, I, I have a wonderful group of interns in my office. I was an intern on the Hill when I was in college. It means a lot to me to make sure our interns have a good experience. And I took my interns out to lunch. I take them out periodically. And I took a group out a year or two ago. And I said, why don't you vote? 
um, why don't you vote? And now they're my interns, of course they vote, but, but I meant why doesn't their generation vote? Because most of the time they don't. And I went around the table and they all explained to me why they didn't vote and, and it got to one young lady and she said something I'd never really heard before and it never really occurred to me, but it was one of those things that when you hear it, you realize it's, it's obvious truth. She says, well, you know, most of my friends, they're just not into it. You know, they're thinking about how they're going to pay for the next quarter or what, what party to go to or, um, you know, what major to have or whatever. They're just not that into it. And I thought, you know, this, she's speaking for millions of young people who it's just not that important compared to the other things going on in their life. And that's our failing to make it clear to everyone, including young people, why it is so important. Um, but I would just say that, that to the young people who are really frustrated and worried about what they see going on in the country, and you should be, you have the power to change it. You have the power to change it. If only you will organize. Um, and, and that's what I would say. Okay, so questions from the audience? Yes, right here in the middle. Okay, Jim. Thank you. Uh, Congressman Schiff, uh, would you talk a little bit about the, how you see the 2024 election, what your hopes, fears, and what you think the realities will be in 2024 when we go to the polls again? Yeah. Um, well, uh, first of all, I, I think that Donald Trump is running for president. Um, and I say that not just because of the rallies that he's doing, but because honestly, I think he would be pathologically incapable of not running. I mean, the idea that he would watch someone else getting all that attention. Can you imagine Donald Trump in his home watching Mike Pence as the nominee or Nikki Haley or any of these people? He'd go out of his mind. So he can't help himself. Um, he will run. And, um, and, and my party needs to take that as serious as a heart attack. Um, when, when Donald Trump ran in 2016, I thought he had no choice, no chance. I used to tell a joke about it. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I used to... Uh, <coughs> you have that? I have it. Oh, my God. The joke is, <clears throat> there are two reasons Trump will never win the Republican nomination. My God, you are prepared. <laughs> First... First, the GOP is not that suicidal. And second, the Democratic Party is not that lucky. Yes, well, the second part was true. Um, so what will that look like? <clears throat> what concerns me the most is that the lesson that Donald Trump's party in Congress <clears throat> seems to have learned from the failed insurrection is that if they couldn't find a Secretary of State who had come up with 11,780 votes that don't exist, they seem determined to make sure that next time they will have somebody who will. And so what they're attempting to do right now is pass laws around the country to make it hard for people to vote, particularly people of color. 
mean, consider, you know, we came through a presidential cycle in which there was almost non-existent fraud. I mean, there's always going to be some people, you know, who are paid to register people to vote, and they get paid per registration, and so they make a, bu a bunch of phony registrations. That happens in every election. Didn't happen any more or any less than any other election. Um, those people don't vote because they don't exist. But that's called voter registration fraud. But the allegations that they made of dead people voting and thousands of people voting who don't exist or whatever it was, was all just nonsense. And they're using that nonsense to try to disenfranchise people, real people, um, real citizens. And the plan seems to be a two-step plan. One is we make it really hard for people to vote who don't look like us. And if we still lose, we put in place people who can help us overturn the result. That seems to be the plan. And it could succeed. This is the terrible thing. It could succeed. You know, I mean, the, the litigation they did around the country was just a joke. You know, with Giuliani with his hair dye running down his face out in front of the, what was it, the Four Seasons Landscaping Company? With a sex offender, no less? I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Next time, it may not be so comical. Next time, let's say it comes down to a single state. Uh, and let's say next time they do find the secretary willing to find, maybe it doesn't require 11,000 votes. Maybe it only requires 1,000. Um, what happens then? And, and so that's why I say things are very fragile. Um, it means right now that we, we have to try to resist these efforts to really run out of town, independent elections officials, technocratic elections officials. This is the stuff you see in, in emerging democracies, and it's happening here. Um, so that's, the, that's the, the contingency to be on guard against. Um, I, I do want to say, because I know this is a heavy conversation, we're going to get through this. Uh, I think when you're in a crisis, and I think America is a crisis right now, it's hard to see when it ends. Sometimes it's hard to see if it ends, but it does end. This too shall pass. We will get through this. Our democracy will survive the trial. And I say that because there are so many millions and millions of Americans who are utterly devoted to our democracy, who cherish it, like everyone in this room, who vastly outnumber those who are trying to tear it down right now. Um, so we will get through this. Um, and, but, but, but we need to have our eyes wide open as we do. Is that you, Marco? Is that a question with blue tie? Congressman Schiff, I'd like to thank you for spending some time in Dallas with us. I have a question as it relates to the uh, January 6th commission. You have chosen, the committee has chosen to pursue the subpoena through the uh, Justice Department. My question is why didn't you choose to use your inherent subpoena power vis-a-vis uh, Journey -vis, uh, versus McCracken. Was that discussed? Um, is there a precedent that I'm not aware of that prevents you from pursuing that? Because as I see it, and I hope I'm wrong, you've got about a year, and then things are going to flip. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate the question. And, and if, if any of you had a little bit of trouble with the mask, the question was, why didn't we pursue inherent contempt to enforce our subpoenas 
instead of going to the Justice Department? And it's a very good question. Um, we certainly did consider inherent contempt, and we do consider it. Um, there are, are a great many witnesses we're subpoenaing, uh, and it may not be appropriate to use the same remedy with all of them. We, we chose with Steve Bannon to pursue the route of criminal contempt and prosecution uh, for a couple of reasons. First, um, prosecution, if the Justice Department undertakes what I think is their duty, is the most expeditious. Uh, and it also, I think, sends the most powerful message to other would-be lawbreakers that they too will be prosecuted. Um, and I think there's nothing like the idea of being prosecuted to get someone's attention. Um, we cannot have a situation where Congress subpoenas someone and they can freely decide, meh, I don't feel like showing up. Can you imagine a court that didn't have the power to enforce its subpoenas? It wouldn't be a court. Uh, and neither would a Congress be a Congress without the power to enforce its subpoenas. But if we use our inherent contempt, um, and I know the argument by some of the commentators is, well, if you, the Congress used to have a jail, and if it reopened the jail, it could move as quickly as it wants through inherent contempt. Um, number one, we don't have a jail anymore. Um, but even if we did have a jail, uh, and we moved to arrest someone uh, or jail them, uh, they would bring a habeas corpus petition in court, and we would be back in court litigating whether we could t detain them. Um, if we instead used inherent contempt to fine someone uh, and gave them a daily fine for their noncompliance, you know, $5,000 a day until they complied by testifying or providing the documents we'd subpoenaed, we would have to garnish their wages, and we'd have to go to court to enforce the garnishment. And it's hard to envisage a scenario that avoids the necessity of ending up in court. Um, now, we may use that remedy with some of the people, um, or we may have to use that remedy if the Justice Department doesn't do what I think their duty requires. I am optimistic, though, that the Justice Department will act. Um, and I say that because uh, the Biden administration, like any presidency, jealously guards its prerogative, which means that their decision to not assert executive privilege over what any of these people have to say or know should not be mistaken for an easy call because they are mindful of the fact that the next president may decide not to assert privilege over their communications. And so it's not a simple matter <clears throat> that they decided to waive any assertion. <clears throat> it wouldn't make much sense to say <clears throat> That they, this, this, <coughs> excuse me, it wouldn't make much sense to say that the circumstances of an attack on the Capitol <clears throat> are so extraordinary that no assertion of privilege is warranted. The public interest is so strongly in favor of disclosure, we will not assert, but we won't enforce the ability to get the answers. It wouldn't make any sense. I also think that the Justice Department under Merrick Garland <clears throat> um, recognizes that if they don't enforce the subpoena as to Steve Bannon, it really can't be said that no one is above the law anymore. Because with respect to any of you, you'd be under arrest if you failed to show up when you were subpoenaed. Um, 
Now, I will say this about the Justice Department that does concern me. And that is, <clears throat> well, I think they will enforce this subpoena. They do not appear to be investigating potential crimes of the former president. And that concerns me. Um, I understand the reluctance to look backward. But if you take the position that you can't prosecute a sitting president, and then you take the position that, well, as a practical matter, you can't prosecute a former president either, then the president himself becomes above the law. And that is a very dangerous idea. Um, in particular, I'm concerned that I don't see the Justice Department looking at the effort of the former president to coerce a secretary of state into effectively stuffing the ballot box. Because um, I can tell you also, had any of you been on tape talking to a secretary of state um, and suggesting they would be prosecuted if they didn't find 11,780 votes, just the exact number you needed to win, you would be under investigation, if not indictment, by now. And I don't think we could ignore that. Um, I think those cases need to be worked up, and then a judgment can be made about what's in the national interest. But I don't think you can just ignore it. And, and that does concern me uh, in terms of the Justice Department. So we are so quickly out of time. And as Dave comes up to the podium to give his closing, in the beginning of your book, you dedicated it to your children and your family, and you said a dad joke. So do you have another dad joke? I do not have another dad <laughs> joke, but um, um, I will share with you something about one of your senators, Ted Cruz. Um, <clears throat> which I think is hilarious. You may not find it hilarious, <laughs> but I've gotten to know Jason Alexander, who uh, played uh, uh, one of the major characters on Seinfeld, and I had lunch with him the other day, and he said to me, do you know why people form an instant dislike of Ted Cruz? It just saves so much time. <laughs> um, can I... Can, can I <laughs> um, <clears throat> Last thing I'll say, because I don't want to end on a Ted Cruz joke. Um, I titled the book Midnight in Washington because midnight is the darkest hour of every day. But it's also a hopeful time because what follows is filled with light. Um, we're going to get through this. Um, we just need to recognize we're at midnight and, and there are better times ahead. Uh, and I, I want to thank you again for your, your very warm um, audience. Thank you.